Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's February the 23rd, a Wednesday. I'm thrilled to announce today uh, that the Keenon Show continues to go up the charts. We're now at the 173rd most popular business podcast in the world. So I'm really thrilled about that on the new chartable chart that comes out every Wednesday. And I think one of the reasons for that is we've had some wonderful historians uh, on the show recently, really rethinking the past. That's what historians do, good historians, that is. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had a wonderful show with the Jewish historian Dara Horn, who forces us to rethink our fetishization, our romanticization of Anne Frank. Um, we had William Dalrymple, the great Anglo-Indian historian, getting us to rethink the British Empire and particularly British behavior in India. Um, we had uh, a wonderfully uh, innovative uh, Norwegian-based uh, historian, Kat Jarman, getting us to rethink the Vikings and, and imagining the Vikings as a kind of Eastern people who ended up in Constantinople, the city that is now known as Istanbul. Uh, we had Jeffrey Wheatcroft rethinking Churchill, certainly a character who, who needs to be rethought. We've done a lot of thinking as well on this show about Islam and Islamic civilization. I had Mustafa Akyol on the show uh, last year uh, talking about the idea of um, uh, an Islamic reformation. He calls uh, his book Reopening Muslim Minds, which assumes that they were once uh, open. Some people don't necessarily agree on that. I had Ayan Hirsi Ali on the show also suggesting that we need um, to rethink Islam. She's a particularly controversial person. He even had a, a local author, Omar Moyal, on the show recently talking about the relationship uh, of Islam in the Americas. Um, when it comes to the Ottoman Empire, had a wonderful show uh, with the Yale historian and uh, Alan Mikhail um, on uh, how uh, Sultan Selim's Ottoman Empire was a great ruler of the Ottoman Empire, shaped the modern world. And we're back on the Ottomans today with a wonderful new book, a really fascinating, controversial book, prize winning. It's called The Ottomans, Cars, Caesars and Caliphs. And it's by my guest today, the London-based London School of Economics uh, historian, Mark David Bauer. Uh, Mark, welcome. Uh, very briefly, uh, be a bit of a historian for a moment and tell me who these Ottomans are. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your show. I don't think the book is controversial. Um, you mentioned that it was controversial. Well, I, controversial, I think conservatives, especially, and we'll come on to this later, conservatives will dispute the idea of the value of, mul of, of, of multi-ethnic communities. But we'll, we'll talk about that later. So I think your question it's not controversial is... in my mind. I love it. I agree completely. But uh, my point is that it has a polemical element. It certainly plays into a lot of the discussions we're having today about a nation state, multi-ethnicity, what Europe is, and so on and so forth. You're right about that. And of course, I, I wrote this book here in you know, Brexit and, and post-Brexit. 
England and, and Britain. So of course, one of the questions on my mind when I was writing the book was the question of what is Europe? Who is European? Where does Europe end and uh, Asia begin? And so you asked who the Ottomans were. The Ottomans were a dynasty that was Afro-Asian and European. And historians usually talk about the Ottomans in their Asian and Middle Eastern context. I wanted to incorporate them fully into their world, which as I mentioned, it went as far west as the, the gates of Vienna. It was the Ottomans ruled parts of North Africa. They certainly ruled the Islamic holy cities of Mecca and Medina and also Jerusalem. They also, their, their territory stretched east into what is today Iran. But of course, the Ottomans also ruled as far north as what is southern Poland, southern Russia at different times. So I wanted to write a history of the dynasty that situated them in the world in which they envisioned, which was a, partly a European one. Um, the, the subtitle of the book uh, is, uh, and, and I think here we have a, a key to how you think of the Ottomans, Khans, Caesars, and Caliphs. Let's start with Caesars, because we've done a number of shows also recently about uh, Rome. We had Edward Watts, for example, on recently, reminding us about uh, exaggerating our connection with Rome. We also had the Cambridge historian Mary Beard on talking about Roman archaeology and sculpture and masculinity in Rome. You, in your book, you suggest that there's something defiantly, definitively Roman about the Ottoman Empire that many of us misunderstand because we characterize or historically and traditionally historians have defined the Ottomans as others, as uh, as Orientals, as part of a, a non-European world. But you resituate the Ottoman Empire in the heart of Europe, uh, in the Roman Empire. Is that fair, David? Yes. Oh, I mean, from, from the 14th century, the Ottomans conquered territory in Europe, and they also intermarried with European dynasties, the Byzantine, the Serbian, and others. They also played a role in the Byzantine civil wars. They also had allies who were Christian, as well as they had Muslims in their, on their side as well. So from the beginning, if we think about the Ottomans from the 14th century, we think about them as having played a role in European history, in Southeastern European history. Now from 1453, when the Ottomans conquer Constantinople, then the Ottoman rulers begin to call themselves Caesar. And so they call themselves Caesar and they consider themselves to be the inheritors of the Roman Empire, not only because they've conquered the second Rome, Constantinople, and they've conquered territory and they've married into these dynasties, but also because they believe that they are going to unite East and West under one crown, one throne, one dynasty, one religion. Now that religion has, has to be, well, it's, it's Islam. So the question I ask in the book is whether Europe is no longer Europe if Muslims are, are ruling over it. And there are a lot of people who argue that it would, but I look at what the Ottomans wrote about themselves and they consider themselves, as you mentioned, as I use as the subtitle of the book, 
to be Khans, which is a Mongol Turkic title. They also consider themselves to be Caesars, the Roman title. And they also consider themselves from the reign of Suleiman to be caliphs, the leaders of the Islamic world. So they brought all of these inheritances together. So the Byzantine Christian, the Turkic, Mongol, as well as the Islamic. The, the traditional vision of the Ottomans, of course, is of this Islamic world that conquered Christian Europe. Here we have this very famous image of, um, I think it's the fall of uh, Budapest, the uh, uh, Ottoman ruler taking over Budapest, the famous story of the Ottomans knocking on the door of Vienna and then being stopped. Well, um, this is probably uh, what you're showing now. This is probably a depiction of the conquest of Constantinople. Oh, it is? Sorry, I apologize. But it, it, it's all in the same sort of pictorial representation of, of regret, of, of the barbarian capturing the Christian world. Of course, your argument in the Ottomans, if, if anything, it's the reverse. You're suggesting that this amalgam of different civilizations, which we now call the Ottomans, actually was the inheritor of classical antiquity in many respects. Is that fair? Well, that's what they, that's how they saw themselves from Mehmed the Conqueror. And so, again, if we think of Mehmed the Conqueror, when he takes Constantinople, he, he designs a palace. Today, it's known as Topkapa Palace, the new palace. And in that palace, he decides to build three pleasure pavilions, we could call them, three kiosks. And again, one is in Byzantine Christian style. It no longer exists. One is in Turkic Mongol style. It's still there at Topkapa Palace. And the third one was, was an Islamic domed structure. So again, so, you know, I, I'm not making this up. I'm looking at how the Ottomans envisioned the world. And they, you know, from that time, from the middle of the 15th century to the early 20th century when the empire uh, dissolves in 1922, they not only played a role in European history, but they also saw themselves as partaking in it. Again, if we think of that same Mehmed, the second, where it all begins in a sense, he had Venetian jewelers, um, or not only jewelers, but he also, he had Venetian portraits artists paint a, a, um, his portrait. And that portrait today is in the Renaissance Gallery here in London at the Victorian Albert Museum. He also had Venetian, um, what would you call them? People who, who create uh, coins and medallions create a coin for him, which in which the creator dressed Mehmed in the same dress as that of the last Byzantine emperor. So it wasn't only that the Ottomans from the 15th century saw themselves as Renaissance princes, Renaissance rulers, but so did other people in Europe. It, you mentioned there was a lot of fear of the Ottomans. Of course there was, but there also were allies of the Ottomans. Again, there's many, many examples moving into the 16th century where the Ottomans are allying with the French and they're bombarding Italian city-states and they plan to attack Rome. So again, th this, is, this is the part of European history that we usually don't think about because we tend to associate Europe with Christians and Asia with Muslims. But right. so, so far, what you're doing is essentially reuniting Europe, just as Europe was reunited after 1989. You're 
reuniting it in a his historiographical sense. You're suggesting that this idea of there being two Europes, the Europe of the West, of the rise of nation states of England and France, and ultimately Germany, and then the, the, the history of Eastern, Southeastern Europe and, and the Ottoman Empire, they're actually really one history. Is that fair? Well, they're, they're not the same. The Ottomans are different. The Ottomans, the ruling dynasty, and the, the the main value of the empire is, and the primordial value is Islam. So they're not the same, but they're connected and they're influencing each other. And often that influence goes from east to west. What about the principles of politics of governance? Obviously, the Ottoman Empire wasn't a democracy. No one's arguing that. But my sense from your book is that the Milliet system, for example, which was the political organizational um, unit, if you like, of the Ottoman Empire, offers many lessons in governing a multi-ethnic community for particularly, I think, conservative as anti-Islamic uh, thinkers. The, the Ottoman Empire uh, reflected a, a kind of um, a, a religious autocracy, but you suggest otherwise. You suggest in your book, The Ottomans, Khan, Caesars and Caliphs, that it was the quintessential multi-ethnic, multi-denominational uh, political uh, community. Is that fair? Yes, and that's, that's another reason why they're similar to the Romans. Now, one of the concepts I talk about in the book is tolerance. And by tolerance, I mean tolerance in the medieval sense which is a ruler allowing a group of subjects to, to live. It's, it's as simple as that. It's not, I, I'm, when I speak of tolerance in the book, I'm not speaking of coexistence. I'm not speaking of equality or democracy. I'm not speaking of the ruling elite viewing members of other religions as having, you know, as their religion being completely valid. In fact, if you look at the Islamic law court records, they refer to Islam as the true religion and Christianity and Judaism as false or vain religions. But still, of course, they tolerated Christians and Jews, allowed them to, to worship and live according to their religious laws. But again, this doesn't mean that they were equal. In fact, Muslims had more rights than Christians and Jews, just as men had more rights than women and the free had more rights than slaves. But there was a system of tolerance that allowed Christians and Jews to thrive in the empire. And when we compare this to medieval Europe, then we see the Ottomans as being a dynasty that Jews, for example, saw in ecstatic terms. Because while medieval Europe murdered, forcibly converted, and expelled Jews from every kingdom, including this kingdom, England, in 1290, the Ottomans allowed Jews from the rest of Europe to settle. And those Jews, for example, who were forcibly converted to Catholicism in Spain and Portugal, made their way, as many as 100,000, made their way to the beginning of the 16th century, the end of the 15th century, after their expulsion of 1492, to the Ottoman Empire. And there, Jews who had been forcibly converted to Catholicism converted back to Judaism. And yeah, it's, a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful reminder of the complexity of the word tolerance. This, what you're talking about is beautifully memorialized in Mark Mazower's book on Salonika, City of Ghosts, in which he writes extensively about the origins of the Jewish community in Salonika and their massacre during the Second World War. 
It also seemed to be captured in the old city of Sarajevo, where I lived for a year in the early 80s. Um, tolerance is, of course, a politically loaded word, um, Mark. You know that. Uh, and Absolutely. You know, so, I mean, tolerance is a medical The tolerance of this kind of, if, if you like, loaded tolerance or the pro-Muslim, but at the same time, willingness to acknowledge the the, the privacy and rights of other communities. You contrast this with the rise of a different kind of idea of tolerance in the West, a kind of Lockean tolerance rooted in the superiority of Christian faith and, 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 and Christian belief. Is that fair, Mark? Right. So usually when we narrate the history of the West, we have different themes. We talk about the Renaissance, the Age of Discovery. We talk about enlightenment and we talk about tolerance and so on. So this narrative, this story we tell about ourselves in Western Europe skips over Islamic Europe. So of course, when Spain was ruled for centuries by Muslims, there was tolerance. And when Eastern Europe, Southeastern Europe was ruled by the Ottomans for centuries, 500, 600 years, of course, the Ottomans introduced religious tolerance there. Again, I'm not saying this is anything we would want today. It's not equality, it's not democracy, but it was a kind of religious tolerance that was non-existent in the rest of Europe. But when we tell the story of tolerance, religious tolerance in Europe, we, we, we skip over the Muslim introduction of the- Why have we done this, uh, Mark? Is it the, you know, the curse of Bernard Lewis, the curse of, uh, Orientalism that Edward Said so brilliantly uh, spent his life uh, re revealing. Is it a, a kind of an, an intrinsic Western racism, hostility to Islam, to Turkish peoples? What is it that has, or, or is it just this century, many centuries of war has resulted in the cultural uh, simplification and vulgarization of the Ottomans? That all can be part of it. I also think nationalism plays a role, and every country tells the story of its past. And um, if you, if you, you know, if you, if you're in Greece or if you're in Bulgaria or if you're in Turkey, you know, they're going to tell certain stories about their past. In Greece, they're going to exclude the Ottoman period, um, or they're going to speak about it in a very negative way. Of course, in this country, in, in England, we like to tell a triumphant narrative of how Britain. Um, be, you know, was able to rule the world, and we work our way backwards. And yeah, we... and it's, it's the Churchillian narrative. Uh, Churchill was a great uh, weaver of, of of myth, of, of story, as Wheatcroft reminds us uh, in the show. Uh, so it is. I, I mean, I'm not critical, Mark. I, I like what you're saying, but it is controversial. This is one of the core debates now amongst historians, and you bring up Greece. Uh, and I think Greece is a very important piece of this story, even if it's not central in the history of the Ottoman Empire. I did a show last year on the uh, uh, the 200th anniversary of um, the Greek Revolution, the Greek uprising uh, with Roderick Beaton, wonderful author on, on Greece. Um, and it was this Greek revolution that was supported by the West that marks the beginning of nationalism in Southeast Europe 
and the rise of a, a different kind of intolerance, which ultimately brought down the Ottoman Empire. Is that fair? Absolutely. And again, Greece has this um, this war in which Muslims participated. It wasn't just Christians versus Muslims. There are Muslims on the side uh, of the um, those who would later call themselves Greek. And so, but the thing was, the Greek War. One of the core um, values that emerged from it was Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, and in the new Greek nation state. Uh, it was a kingdom, of course, but in in the new Greece, one it, they just assumed that the only citizen would be a Christian. So this kind of exclusion, this kind of exclusionary nationalism we see in the 19th century. And I mentioned earlier, I talked about medieval Ottoman tolerance. Now, the Ottomans from 1789 to the end of empire in 1922, the elite and the dynasty searched for answers to how to save their empire in their own words. And so they tried different experiments. They tried constitutionalism, they tried parliamentary um, not quite democracy, but more democratic systems. They also abandon tolerance. What I mean by that is the hierarchies that that allowed everyone to coexist, but made the Muslims um, have the, the primary position. So they abandoned that in the middle of the 19th century, making Muslims, Christians, and Jews equal citizens in the empire. And they tried that. They tried to have the basis of loyalty ba be based on um, just loyalty to the dynasty, or any person, this Ottomanism, but it but it failed partly because of what you're talking about. These these nationalisms, Greek and Serbian, and later Arab and Kurdish, and also Turkish. These kind of and Armenian. These nationalisms, of course, um, would, as you mentioned, contribute to the end of empire. But what's important is that for centuries, with tolerance, we didn't see any massacres of. Christians in the empire. But at the end of the 19th century, when they've abandoned this tolerance and they're trying equality, but yet at the same time, there's this rise of Ottoman Muslim nationalism. For the first time, we see massacres of Armenians. Right. I, I want to get to that, Mark, but I want to, there'll be some people watching this and saying, mm, interesting argument, the Ottomans, Khan, Caesars, and Caliphs, but what about the treatment of women? I mean, I'm not saying uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali would necessarily argue against the book. I don't want to put words into her mouth, but she argues very strongly, not so much against the Ottomans, but against Islamic civilization generally, this terrible treatment of women. The Ottomans, of course, um, had slaves or a, a kind of slavery. Uh, it was a profoundly violent, uh, hierarchical society, also in some ways very cruel, not that Europe wasn't cruel. And of course, European behavior in the Crusades was as cruel as anyone. How would you respond, though, to those kinds of perhaps traditional political and cultural critiques of the Ottoman Empire? What I like to do in the book is to bring, again, as you mentioned earlier, bring the different Europes together and bring Europe and Asia together. And then we see the similarities. And then we see, for example, just on the topic of gender, then we see how in Renaissance Europe, from London to Florence to Istanbul, there was a, a shared culture of man-boy desire and love. So again, you know, I'm not praising or condemning this uh, aspect of Renaissance culture, but in the book, I, sh I talk about how it was part and parcel of all these societies. And so slavery, of course, was also 
a major component of Ottoman society. And it was, um, of course, also, you know, how, you know, if you look at the, the wealth, uh, how a wealth was amassed in this country, in, in, in England, of course, it was through slavery and, and, um, and colonialism. So, so the Ottomans also had a system that was based on slavery, but slavery in the Ottoman Empire, in some respects, was quite different in the sense that slaves were able to rise in the hierarchy of government. Because from the 14th century, the Ottomans established this system, which lasted for about three and a half centuries, where they had a levy on Christians in their conquered regions, in their own empire, which went against Islamic law, actually. They took one out of every 40 Christian boys from their homes, and they brought them to the capital. They, they, and based on those boys' abilities, intellectual or physical, they then they converted them to Islam. They circumcised them, of course, and they raised them to be the, the, the elite in the military or the elite administrators. Right. Um, so we have to. So we have to. So we have right, to think about all yeah. of this together, and we can't come to any simplistic judgment about about the Ottomans. We 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 talk about all of these different elements and and we we talk about these based on the ottoman sources which openly talk about all these things so we're, we're contrasting that the lockean notion of religious tolerance which seems at least in in, in your view quite intolerant with a, a broader perhaps a more medieval notion of, of of ottoman tolerance the lockean notion though seems to have won out because of the success of the west and we've had so many shows and so many historians have, have written books from Max Weber onwards, Marx onwards, on why the West was successful. Why do you think the Ottoman Empire declined militarily and economically in contrast with the West? Okay, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, I people like to talk about the Ottomans. They like to quote the, the Russian Tsar who said the Ottomans were the sick man of Europe. And again, in my book, I like to focus on the of Europe part. And throughout the book, I talk about how that was the more important aspect of that phrase. So the Ottomans, of course, they had this elite military that was made up of these slave recruits taken from converted Christian boys. And they had a, they also had a policy of fratricide when a, in the early centuries amongst the, the, the dynasty. So when a Sultan passed away, his, sons who were sent out as governors throughout the in the provinces would race to the capital to be enthroned. Along the way, they would battle their other brothers. And when one was enthroned, was accepted by the military and the judges, then they would put to death any male of the dynasty that they thought could threaten them, ranging from infants to elderly uncles, brothers, cousins, you name it. So they used these two things, the, the recruitment method and fratricide. And because of that, for three and a half centuries, they were able to maintain a, a unified empire and um, without too much rebellion from within. But beginning in the 17th century, they began, they changed their system of rule. They began, they began primogenitor, it was simply the oldest uh, son who became the ruler. They were not sent out to the provinces to be trained in the arts of governance or war. And they also, the elite infantry had, you know, was no longer strictly regulated and the infantry began to um, 
those people began to marry and just basically go against all of the previous centuries practices. So these practices changed, but also of course the world had changed. The Ottomans had had a technological edge into the 16th century, but they, they lost this edge and, and perhaps most threatening was the rise of Russia. So Russia from the 18th century began to be the Ottomans main enemy. And so that's why the Ottomans from the 18th century began to reform their military, uh, began to create a new army, began to create new schools, new academies. And again, they, they played around with different types of government, including a constitution, including a parliament at the end of the 19th century. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about this today because Erzegen, the Turkish leader, has just come out. I mean, there were some headlines I saw earlier this morning about uh, warning the Russians about the lack of legitimacy of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is, of course, an age-old issue, an age-old geopolitical tension. Uh, you're right, of course, about the Turks wanting or the, the Ottomans wanting to catch up. You've talked about the rise of nationalism in the Ottoman Empire that resulted ultimately in its fragmentation. For you, this rise of nationalism, though, isn't particularly heroic, is it? It brings the worst elements of the West, even if it was an attempt in some ways to emulate the West, to catch up, to industrialize, to democracy, to democratize. What is it about nationalism as a sort of successor principle in the Ottoman Empire that is, is most troubling to you, uh, Mark? Well, I would just say that if you think of an imperial system, the imperial system is made up of, of many components. And when the Ottomans fell in 1922, their empire was then divided into, I don't know, 20, 21, 22 different states. So the Ottomans had been able to incorporate all these different peoples um, and had been able to, for example, allow the Kurds a great deal of autonomy in the southeastern part of, of what is, well, Turkey and what is today Turkey and Iraq and Syria had given the, the Kurds, for example, a great deal of autonomy. But in the late 19th century, with the rise of nationalism, there are different, you know, there are different feelings amongst the Kurds, whether they should support the Sultan in Istanbul. Also, we see a kind of Ottoman Muslim nationalism, which saw a place for Kurds and Arabs and Turks and other Muslim peoples in the empire, but not any place for Christians. And so this Ottoman Muslim nationalism was part of the reason why we see the Armenian genocide during the First World War. What about, uh, I, I'm gonna come back to the Armenian genocide, but do you see Erzegan, this uh, extremely successful political figure in Turkey as an inheritor of Ottoman Turkish nationalism? That's a good question and a good point. Certainly in his, his views, we hear him talking about the reason that Turkey is sending troops and occupying parts of Northern Syria. He'll mention the Ottoman past. It's, you know, Erdogan and people like him in Turkey, they want to proclaim themselves to be the inheritors of the Ottomans when they see the when the Ottomans are you know powerful and wealthy and the envy of the world but when you bring up such things as the Armenian genocide then they want nothing to do with they want their Ottoman cake and they I'm want their too um which is true I guess Mark of all of us what about this Kemal Ataturk the father figure of modern Turkey 
He doesn't come out of your narrative particularly well, does he? I I don't know if he comes out well or unwell. Well, I but mean, he, he, maybe not him personally, but he represents uh, the, the Turkish nationalism as the inheritor of the Ottoman state in all the, the most critical, the worst aspects of your narrative. Is that fair? Well, I, I would say that certainly he proclaims, despite the fact that he was an, an Ottoman through and through, uh, he was born in 1880, 1881 in Salonika, which was it's today part of Greece, was then uh, one of the most important Ottoman cities. And he was an Ottoman military officer. He was the hero of Gallip Gallipoli. He was in many campaigns um, during that time period. And then after the and then after the First World War, of course, he led uh, this Ottoman Muslim nationalist resistance against the occupying powers. But once he came to power, once he was able to establish a, a Turkish Republic with those like-minded revolutionaries around him, despite his Ottoman past, he sought to turn his back on the Ottoman past and to denigrate it and to uh, really to rubbish it. And we see this um, very clearly in his, his policies and his pronouncements in the 1920s, turning his back on everything that wasn't Turkish and even turning his back on Islam, establishing the secular Republic, abolishing the caliphate and banishing the dynasty from Turkey. Mark, some people are gonna to listen to this and gonna be nostalgic for this world of the Ottomans. As I said, I lived in Sarajevo before the Civil War, but before the Yugoslav Civil War of the mid eighties. And when I lived there for a year, I was a British council uh, fellow. Uh, it did seem to somehow capture the, the multicultural nature of, of, the, of the Ottoman world, even if the Ottoman Turks, uh, the Ottoman Empire had obviously disappeared many, uh, many years before. Sarajevo has been ethnically cleansed in many respects after the civil war. Is there a place, do you think, in the world, perhaps in modern Turkey or in the modern Middle East, that still captures this principle of Ottomanism? A city, an individual, a state? There, there are certainly thinkers, there are certainly writers across the former territories of the Ottoman Empire who would like to, to recreate um some of those aspects of tolerance of course but today we're you know this is this is 2022 and and no one's going to accept being a second class citizen um we we favor democracy and we want to vote we want our our voice to be heard in the court of law we don't want when we go to the court of law that they won't allow us to bear witness against someone because of our religion so so this kind of nostalgia is is a little bit um it's a little bit odd in a way. We don't want to turn back the clock and say things we were better than forward. But is there is there an Ottoman 2.0 to use rather vulgar <laughs> Silicon Valley language, Mark? I'm not sure about that. But there have been there have been mayors, you know, the mayor, there was the former mayor. Of, uh, the, the of mayor is, yeah. Um finally, you've you've mentioned um the Armenian genocide several times. This was, of course, uh, an appalling event as appalling as perhaps anything else in history. Um, is it still, in your view, understood and recognized in Turkey, or is it still too controversial? 
well, the, the official position of, of Turkey and its, its um, and the state of Turkey is to deny that it ever happened. But there are many, many people in Turkey who, who know and many Turkish historians and historians who are not Turkish, but from Turkey, who, who have done research and who know what happened. And, and you know, you could, you don't even have to, I mean, this sounds, this sounds uh, rude, but we don't even have to listen to the Armenian testimony or the, the testimony of foreign missionaries to know that the genocide happened. All we have to do is we look at the, the firsthand accounts of the perpetrators, uh, we look at their telegrams, we look at the, the, uh, the diary of the architect of the genocide, Talat Pasha, and we could just use all that Ottoman language material and we could, we could understand that there's a genocide. But again, no country, no country likes to just, um, you know, unless they're forced to, countries don't like to think too diff too hard, you know, too much about their past and the genocides they've committed and the human rights they violated and the massacres they perpetrated. You know, modern nation state wants to create patriotic, proud um, citizens. And, but I think it's the importance of historians is to, what we do is we look at historical sources. We look at what people wrote 500 years ago. And 500 years ago, there were, um, there were, people in Western Europe who were saying that the Ottomans were the, they thought they were the rightful inheritors of Rome and it wasn't Charles V and the Habsburgs. So, so we read this material from 500 years ago, from 100 years ago, and it's often surprising and often goes against what we think today, but, but, that's, but that's the role of, a, of an honest historian. And in the beginning of the book, I, I state very clearly, I state very clearly, you know, my aim is neither to praise nor to condemn the Ottomans. It's not my role, but my role is to, to discuss everything that's about them that's so yeah, difficult to familiar. When we started this, I said you were controversial. I'm, I didn't mean that in a critical way. You're asking hard questions. Some of the answers aren't going to please some people. Probably some of the answers don't particularly please you. But you're asking the important questions. And, he, and this attempt to in a hist historical sense or a histor historiographical sense, reunite Europe, of Christian Europe and, uh, and, and Muslim Europe, the Ottomans and, and, and Western Europe is really important. Uh, Mark David Bauer's new book, The Ottomans, Khan, Caesars and Caliphs, is a wonderful read. It's going to win a lot of awards. Congratulations, Mark, on the book and congratulations for articulating these ideas in such, with such contemporary relevance. Uh, in late February 2022, as history remains so relevant with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, what else should people be reading in addition to your new book, The Ottomans? I like reading fiction. And uh, one of my, I have several favorite Turkish authors. One of them is Orhan Pamuk. And I think his best novel and his shortest novel is The White Castle. So if you can get a hold of that, I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, I'd love to get him on the show. That might be a... Uh a tough one but if he's watching you're always welcome and finally uh mark uh we're asking this of all our guests to to to, to end the show uh mark david bauer the author of the ottomans uh mark who runs the world we do and we run the world whether we participate in politics or not but we certainly have a say in this world 